Let me ask you to turn with me this morning to the 24th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Words and the incident that we read together today are familiar to us here. We have looked at them before. We reference them often. There are some, well, highly significant phrases here with regard to our understanding of Scripture, of doctrine. There are certainly some very warm portions here with regard to experience. And so we read from verse 13, Behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus. The day in the context of, of course, the day of resurrection, Sunday of our Lord's being risen from the dead. Two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were whole. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk? And are sad. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they also had seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered those things and to enter into his glory? Beginning at Moses and all the prophets He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. And they drew nigh into the village whither they went. And He made as though He would have gone further. But they constrained Him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And He went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as He sat at meat with them, He took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while we talked with us by the way, and while he opened unto us the Scriptures? They rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven gathered together, and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way, 
and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. Linda reading in verse 25. And again, we trust and ask the Lord to bless the public reading of his inspired word. Do join with me and let's bow our heads and our hearts once again together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we rejoice again rehearsing this precious story, this special visitation of the risen Christ with some troubled disciples. Lord, we rejoice to sing corporately your praises and even the words of testimony we've just finished singing. And we ask that we might have thoughtfully sung and remember what sins have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And so we come and pray that you might help us now. Give grace in our meditations upon your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Well, as we began on the Sunday following Easter to look at these that we call the post-resurrection appearance, it's one many years ago now we looked at before. Jesus didn't walk with His disciples in the same way after His resurrection as He did in the days of His earthly ministry. We saw that strikingly demonstrated in that first appearance to Mary Magdalene when He and told her not to hold on to him anymore. She was ready for things to go back the way they were, for her and the others to be ministering to his particular needs. Well, what irony for one to think of ministering and serving the needs of the risen Christ, our glorified Redeemer. And we see just piece by piece these appearances that unfold for us in the Scriptures. They're remarkable in many ways. They're remarkable for the selection and who He chose to appear to and how He chose to appear and how He withheld a knowledge of the fact that it was Him for a moment and some occasions and even longer on this one that we've read and then lets Himself be known. Some mystery certainly to us in that perspective of the eyes, the understanding being held and then opened. But this one that we've read today is one that I think is precious and special for many reasons. Personally, it's one that has been near to my own heart for really most of my adult life. I have to say that in some chemical reasons, argumentative reasons that I've focused in on this passage and well, that's because there's, there's some doctrine here uh, that was, well, revelatory to myself in coming out of the dispensational understanding of Scripture. I mean, here's a portion among so many throughout the Word, but one that quite explicitly unfolds for us the unity of Scripture, the unity of the message of Scripture, the theme of Scripture, the presence of Christ, the same Jesus we understand in the New Testament throughout the Old. Those of you, Dr. Barrett seems to be getting a lot of uh, airtime here recently, but those of you familiar with 
Well, the first of his... The title is taken from the portion we've read. Beginning at Moses. Well, that book is a really an Old Testament theology. But of course, Christ is the theme of the Old Testament. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets. Well, Christ here, our brother Dr. Barrett in his book, unfolds in the Scriptures the things concerning Himself, concerning Jesus. But it's not, I think, for those argumentative reasons that the passage is familiar and famous. It's certainly more for personal, really almost devotional reasons that the passage stands out to us so dearly and so strongly. And it's in some ways that I want to focus on those pieces of it today. I've looked at this before. I've looked at it in a general way. I looked at some older notes and got a whole seven-point outline out of these words. Well, I don't want to preach seven points to you today. But I do want us to pause. Preachers seem to get off and stuck on threes. Well, today I'm back into the threes. Three things that I think out for us in a general and yet an important way in this portion of Scripture. And so as we've read it and considered again these precious words, I want you to think with me firstly of how these words do point us toward the need and even the experience of doctrinal maturity. These were believers that Christ revealed Himself to. Best we can understand, I have heard some preachers at times wonder if one of them, obviously Cleopas, the named one, was not one of the eleven. Some have wondered if the other was. I don't think it's the case. These are just two, if we can understand, of that outer band of disciples, the followers of Jesus, but not the eleven. And it underscores for us that there was perhaps a lot more communication between these two groupings, if you will, than we're inclined to think. I mean, we notice in the passage itself that when these two go back to Jerusalem and they go to where the eleven are gathered, they have no trouble finding them. They know where they are. And the eleven are mentioned. It's actually almost mentioned as a, as a specific title now because we know Judas, or excuse me, well, Judas, yes, but Thomas was not with the other ten. So the full eleven weren't there at this point, yet they're still called the eleven, the grouping. But then it says, and others with them. Well, these two are known, obviously, to the eleven. That outer band and inner band of the disciples have enjoyed much communion and fellowship. But these are two that obviously are thoughtful disciples. They band together. They're walking back to Emmaus. These furlongs mentioned in our King James Bible, it's, it's really a distance of about seven miles that they are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Every now and then, Bible references make me think about the Appalachian Trail. Seven miles are seven miles. I don't care if you're climbing and descending, which is pretty much the Appalachian Trail. They're not very much flat. It's either up or down, and they're both hard. They're hard in different ways. This was a road, so perhaps taking some of the more level places, but I don't care if you're walking on a parking lot. Seven miles is seven miles. So there's some distance involved, and yet as they journey, 
They speak to themselves. And if you notice in the reading there, they were reasoning. There's a lot they're working through. And our Lord understands this. And He chooses to draw near to these two. And as you know, and I've even mentioned on the side in a couple of these previous uh, studies of these post-resurrection appearances, I'm just taking at the questions that are asked. I just wonder even of the inflection, the tone of voice that there must have been in some of these questions and answers. But Jesus draws near. And He asks them. He speaks to them if we look uh, in verse 14, or excuse me, verse 15, it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, so they're not idly just chatting, as it were, they're trying to figure things out. They communed with one another and reasoned. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Verse 17, he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk? And then, of course, he draws alongside the observation and are sad. He's asked them a leading question. He knows their reasoning. They're trying to work it through. There's an emotional component in the middle of it. Cleopas, we're given his name because it's him that speaks and answers Christ, and he answers with questions of his own. And he says, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? Hast not known the things which have come to pass there in these days? Cleopas, you just picture this. Cleopas asking Jesus, Don't you know? And then Jesus asks him, What things? I say I have thought often of just the tone of voice in the question. Here is Jesus. If you can bring in the agonies of Gethsemane, if you can bring in His infinite knowledge of the transaction that has just been worked out by Himself, something that in the eternal counsels of the triune God had been agreed upon, had been covenanted together. In our doctrinal formulations, we speak at times within the covenant of grace, that great gospel term, that we sometimes subdivide that a little bit and speak of a, a covenant of redemption. The covenant of grace being between the triune God and His people. And that's just the message of the Gospel. But the covenant of redemption being what we have those, those little windows into in Scripture of an agreement, of a covenant between the persons of the Godhead that a people, a people chosen out of this fallen sum of humanity are by the Father given unto Christ before the foundation of the world, that Jesus might give Himself a ransom for their souls. That He might pay the price of their redemption. 
that He might personally bear the wrath of God against their sins. And those things that transpired in those days in Jerusalem. That He might so fully accomplish their redemption that He's raised from the dead as a testimony to the victory of His work, to the acceptance of His work, and thus the acceptance of His people. And that they might live with Him and enjoy Him forever. With an infinite knowledge of our sin, (laughs) with an infinite knowledge of the perfection of His work for us, He asks them, what things? You're reasoning together. You're trying to, to figure out something in this has caught you by surprise. They're pieces of the Messiah's work that you've anticipated. You've anticipated a glorious day of a a kingdom. You've anticipated a day of this Messiah being made known to the world. And that isn't exactly what happened. What things? Of course, Cleopas answers and gives those incomplete statements with regard to Jesus. I say when we read this account of Jesus coming and walking with these men on the road to Emmaus, it underscores our need for doctrinal maturity. And of course, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, opens unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. There was a doctrinal and at, that they needed. These disciples obviously believe. These disciples obviously have devotion to Christ. But their understanding is imperfect. And so throughout this visit, our Lord draws near to them to show them more of Himself. Now, if I can just seek to apply that to our own lives. I've emphasized this more than once in recent weeks. The need for us to have doctrinal maturity. We are tempted at times to think and experience doctrine, which is teaching, as an impersonal thing. We can look at it and talk about theology. And so immediately we can put it in the category of that which is dry, that which is maybe academic, that which involves learning certain facts. Well, can I underscore for you? It's true we can relegate doctrine into those categories. We can treat it in that way. And I think in some ways then undermine it. 
fail to appreciate teaching, doctrine. Doctrinal maturity should not, need not, be a dry academic thing. Learning. Learning can be precious. You think of some of our little ones as they're learning the world. Many times when we see something for the first time, we're overwhelmed. We experience it emotionally at the same time as we understand it rationally. How many times growing up, I remember asking my parents, do you remember when we did such and such? And often they would say they didn't remember. But to me, it was vivid. Well, what was the difference? Well, the first time, say, they took me to see Stone Mountain State Park, which wasn't a state park in those days. You had to dodge the cows in the pastures. You walked up to see the mountain. I was scared some of those cows had horns on them. But they'd seen it before. But that's the first time I'd seen it. And so my knowledge of that view and of that mountain or that waterfall was, well, it was joined with emotion because it was fresh. I was learning something. I was experiencing something. You think about that in relationships. Think about that. It's always dangerous for preachers to name people in sermons, especially when I used to have three little girls sitting over there. They're paralyzed. What's he going to say? Well, Audrey and John, I mentioned your names. Recently engaged. Well, what's a piece of that? They're learning. They're interested in learning more about the other person. Well, that can be a vital part, obviously, of the relationship and all of our relationships, especially when we have the covenant of marriage in view, to learn all and as best as we can. So when we speak of doctrinal maturity, let us be jealous not to view that as dry academic, and therefore perhaps in some ways unnecessary to the other pieces of Christian experience. We can have zeal. Zeal can carry emotion with it and love for the Lord. But without knowledge, zeal can lead us in wrong directions. It can lead us to bad doctrine. It can also lead us to run out of gas. Because we're not learning more of our Savior. And one of the reasons I pause and have mentioned this aspect of our experience several times in recent months, I think of my own experience. I think of some of you, perhaps thinking more of some of like the charter member kind of people. There was a season in our experience as a congregation and in many of our lives, our experience personally, where we were believers, we were devoted to our Lord, but like these disciples on the road to Emmaus had some imperfect knowledge, not that our knowledge is perfect now, 
but coming into the doctrines of grace. Engaging in the serious matter of coming into a new church. We had to look at those doctrines seriously. And there was a freshness. There was at times a, an experience, an emotional experience of seeing something more of our Savior than we hadn't seen before. Well, I put that to those of you that haven't gone that road. That grew up in this church or another church under the doctrines of grace. For you didn't have to go through the exercise of moving from one point of doctrine to another. And we're talking about secondary matters here, but yet important matters when it comes to the details of the Gospel. And without having to work through those and the seriousness of a, an ecclesiastical change, sometimes some of that work may not get done. Some of that searching and that understanding that brother shared in the Sunday school hour of that distinguishing love of God, the undeserving nature of the recipients of that love. Some of these truths can just either be assumed or neglected. Don't let us assume or neglect the deeper things with regard to our Savior. There's not one of us as God's children that has no need of doctrinal material. We need to be learning our Jesus. What a wonder the learning that these men engaged in. But the second theme I would pull from this encounter with you today is this. Not only was there a maturing in doctrine. But there was personal devotion. Our Lord speaks to them. He opens the Scriptures unto them. And then we have the phrase, perhaps a phrase that is the reason that this passage is so well known. Is as our Lord shows Himself to them, makes Himself known in the breaking of bread, and then He vanishes out of their sight. They marvel. They look one to another and they say, like those lepers in the story that find the food in the abandoned camp and say, this is a day of good tidings. We don't do well to hold our peace. They're overwhelmed. And they make that phrase, did not our hearts burn within us? Personal devotion. Here, I think, is another danger for us. And if it is those in some ways that are outside or unfamiliar with the doctrines of grace, the details of these truths that have need of doctrinal maturity, sometimes there are those of us that have paid attention to these details, look into these particular doctrines. We understand the nuances of the Reformed faith Necessary, good, but yet to do so merely academically. 
to not come to this experience, did not our hearts burn within us? I say in the early years of my experience in ministry, I was drawn to this passage because of its implications with regard to doctrine, to the unity of Scripture. Some of those points of the covenantal dispensational debate. Jesus as the object of faith, even in the Old Testament. Those good, necessary things. But I say the familiarity perhaps in some ways the preciousness of this passage is in this vivid imagery of our hearts burning within us. I just pause and in the most simple way ask you today, has this ever been your experience? As believers... I would say we have to answer yes. I do not believe a heart is regenerated, a soul is brought to life, and there's no experience that it's merely an intellectual thing. Of course not. We're connected to this. Jesus did this for me. And we can't experience that without a warm heart. what is it in one of the many of these hymns of Bonner that we love to sing? He confesses in one of the lines, my love ebbs and flows. I rejoice at the next line, no change Jehovah knows. Peace with thee, he says, remains the same. No change Jehovah knows. But the warm heart, how long is it that we can go on in our Christian experience without our heart being warmed? It may be, sadly, if we are unmindful or uncaring about hearts, our hearts when they grow colder, when the warmth begins to fade. Some of you ladies will have remembered some studies with Jan in the book of Song of Solomon. And there's a a love sickness in that book. When the beloved is near, The heart is sick with love because it's overwhelmed with love and the presence and the experience of the Beloved. And then when, as we see in that book, the Beloved at times withdraws Himself. Is the bride uncaring in those moments? Unfeeling? Is all emotion done? Or is there not also a love sickness that yearns for the presence to return. And I see here is an aspect of personal devotion that we must ever be mindful of. To rejoice in, to seek out through the means of grace, 
those experiences of warmed hearts in the presence of Christ as He would reveal Himself to us through those various means? Do we find His presence and warm ourselves by it in the Word? Do we seek His presence and seek to have our hearts warmed by it by coming unto Him in the place of prayer? Do we seek His presence and to have our hearts warmed by it as we gather together corporately? There are a lot of pieces of our corporate gatherings that we can do. We can function. We can apparently thrive and be busy and active in and not have hearts be warmed. And interestingly, we can pursue the means of grace in very simple ways without a lot of the accoutrements that so often become parts of a ministry and in their own ways and places. Not only not wrong, but can be a blessing. But the point is, the warm heart. And do we sense when the heart isn't warm? And do we lament that? And then do we seek Him? Do we run in the streets looking for Him and asking others, where is He? Have you seen Him? It's one of the things you see in days of revival. To borrow the phrase from the Gospels, It's noised abroad that Jesus is in the house. We need such days. Here's true believing experience. These weren't perfect men. These weren't men with perfect understanding. That's obvious. I mean, the Lord has just looked at them and said, you're foolish. (laughs) Fools. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. How many true Christians today are fools and slow of heart to believe all that's revealed to Jesus in the Word? But when Jesus draws near and opens unto us, beginning at Moses and in all the prophets and in all the Scriptures, now even these wonderful New Testament Scriptures, after the fact Scriptures, Our hearts indeed should be warmed. Personal devotion and experience is part of our pilgrim journey. We cannot and should not ever be long without warmed hearts. But the third thing I would draw from this encounter before you today is Dedicated service. These men immediately after the Lord is made known to them and then withdraws from them. And you know, it's interesting, an aspect of this that I didn't bring out, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting piece of this whole story. Jesus draws near. He knows who they are. He knows what they're talking about. 
He comes near for all these purposes we've just outlined. And then when they get near the village, he made as if he would have gone further. He's just going to keep journeying. He, he orchestrates it, as it were, for them to ask him, come, stay with us. It's getting late anyway. You can eat with us and, and stay and finish your journey tomorrow. He comes in. They're so taken with him that they, they make him the host at the meal. He breaks the bread. He gives thanks. They've been overwhelmed with these warmed hearts and how much he's understood about what things transpired in Jerusalem that day, those days. They hadn't fully grasped yet. But when he withdraws, I say we see in them dedicated service. They had told him it's getting late, it's getting dark, you don't want to stay on the roads. Come, rest, eat with us, stay here. It doesn't matter now to them. Seven more miles, darkness, no 750 lumen tactical flashlights available. Just go. If you stump your toe, it's okay. We've got to get back to Jerusalem and tell the eleven and the others. It's true what the women have reported. We have seen Him now. They had to be weary. I don't care how well-groomed and level or even downhill the roads were. I remember one of my recent hikes, which hasn't been overly recent with COVID and two and a half years of no exercise, no mountains, too many more pounds added on. But uh, one of my sons-in-law and I did a significant hike. First day was steep, high elevation, crest of that mountain. I never felt better on the top of a mountain. Not that I was in great shape. I felt better good that the climbing part was done. Build a fire, rest, eat our food. And the next day, down, down, down to the river. The Nanahala is where we're pulling out where you guys go rafting. Downhill. It'll be a piece of cake. Well, those miles got long. Downhill. By the end of those, I think, eight or nine miles, that morning of downhill, I leaned over to my son-in-law and said, if your life depended on it, could you turn around right now and go back up what we just came down today and then go down what we went up yesterday back to the car? And he looked at me and said, if my life depended on it. And he thought for a minute and then he said, no. <laughs> we're tired. I mean, even downhill, those were real miles. How quickly did these men traverse those seven miles? Was it a labor to them? Oh, it was a pleasant obligation. We have to share this news. And you think of what they would have shared, although if we had read further in the narrative... They didn't have a lot of time to speak. The Lord allows them time to get there, to make their report that 
Jesus is risen. We've seen Him. And Jesus Himself enters into that room. And of course, He is given the floor. But what of the days following? To tell that story over and over again. To be able to share with another troubled and seeking and perhaps doctrinally immature soul. You know, how many times do we read Isaiah there and we didn't get it? But think about it. This was talking about Jesus' crucifixion. It was talking about Jesus' burial. It was talking about Jesus' resurrection. They were enabled, I say, with joy to render dedicated service because truth had found its way. They had learned something more of Jesus. Their hearts had been warmed by it. They personally experienced it and rejoiced. And then they became like Jeremiah who even when he was ready to quit, turn in his resignation paper said, but thy word was in my heart as a burning fire. I couldn't hold it in. I was weary of holding it in. I have to speak. That should and is the experience of those that have learned and experienced something more of Jesus. Let us today take up this precious record of this real brief encounter, but yet of what it is to have hearts warmed by the truth and the power of the gospel of redeeming grace. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful in Your infinite wisdom and Your love for Your people that not only did our risen Christ appear to these two men in that day of sadness and soul-searching, but that You've recorded these events and these words for us. Challenge us with them. Lord, give us to be blessed by them and yet, if need be, even greatly convicted by them. And Lord, don't let us corporately or any of us individually ever justify or allow to continue a long season of cold, unwarmed hearts. Let that love sickness thrust us into the streets to seek our beloved. Prosper the Word to us, one and all, today we ask. We pray it in Jesus' worthy and precious name. Amen.